Good morning. I'm excited to be here with you today while Jeff's out of town. Um, he's actually on a short trip with his wife this weekend. They went and saw the LSU game yesterday and had a really great, really great day. Got to watch their Tigers come back with the biggest win um, in almost 70 years. So I'm a little bit jealous that I'm here, but I'm glad to be here and I'm glad that he's getting to spend some time with his wife and enjoy a little bit of rest. So. Our big question, am I on? Okay. Our big question this morning is, how do you know you're saved? And for most of us in this room today, we at one point or another in our lives have put our trust in Jesus. And so we who've been saved, we know that there come these times, these troubles, these trials where we begin to ask the question, how do we know we're saved? How do we really know that we have eternal life with Jesus? And so we're going to be spending our time in 1 John this morning to answer that question. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry about it. We'll have it on the screens for you. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Now we use those terms eternal life and saved interchangeably because they mean the same thing. So in Luke 19.10, Jesus says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So those terms both mean that we belong to Jesus. So you may hear me say saved today, you may hear me say eternal life. I might use both. So John says in, these, in this epistle that these things were written so that you may know you are saved, that you may know you have eternal life. I read a story in preparing for today that it really just gives us that picture of what John's doing here. And there was this little boy, he was two years old one day named Billy, and he wandered off from home and his friends and his family searched for him frantically for hours. And then finally, they found him, and they carried him home. And so a couple weeks later, there was a guest over at their house, and his mom was telling them the story of him being lost. And so all of a sudden, he became worried and said, did you ever find me? And his mom said, of course, my child. Don't you remember that happy moment? See, you're with us now, and we'll make sure that you always are. And he took her at his word, so he was comforted. How much more should we be comforted by this word from 1 John, from God's word? So John says, I write these things to you so that you may know you have eternal life. But what are these things that John's written? He's talking about the whole rest of the book. And for those of you who have your Bible open, you can see that we're all really at the end of 1 John. So the first four chapters up through now are those things that let us know we have eternal life. So we're going to take a look at three of those things. The first thing to let someone know they are saved is that they keep the commands of the Bible. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in the light, or, and walk 
in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. But what does it mean to walk in the light as he is in the light? To walk in the light is to walk in the righteous, right ways of God. And that light is the word of God. So to walk in the light is to literally put into practice what God has told us in his scriptures to do. And in verse 7, we see that there are two evidences of walking in the light. One of those is that we have fellowship with one another. One scholar describes fellowship this way that we come together and we are mutually accountable to each other. We recognize the importance of the means of grace and fellowship with the body of Christ. And we don't take lightly separating ourselves from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And two, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now I want you to hold on to that one for just a minute because we're going to wrap back around to it. Look at chapter two, verses one through three. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. So is this starting to sound religious yet? Like, as religious and ritual-like as it's starting to sound, keeping commands, there's so much more behind this verse that sets it apart, and that's the power and the love behind it. Did you catch the word in verse 2, propitiation? Some of you probably have atoning sacrifice in your Bible. And that is the picture of propitiation, which means to avert wrath and satisfy justice. But I want you to see today the depth of that picture. Because we're all fallen people. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so in the Old Testament times, before Jesus came, there was a system of sacrifices for that sin. So when a person would sin, they would go to the temple, they would take a lamb or a goat, and they would sacrifice it, and the blood of the animal would cover their sin. Now we're not talking about just taking inventory of your flock and saying, oh, that one, he's not too great, I'll take him. No, you give your best to God. You don't give God a goat or a lamb that's got a broken leg or is sick. And so each time a person sinned, they would have to go make a choice on the best animal they had, and they would have to go and take it and sacrifice it to cover that specific sin. I'm pretty sure most of us would probably be making those sin offerings two or three times a day. No, at least I would. But then Jesus steps into the picture, and he lives a perfect life, no sin, and they lead him to the cross like a lamb to the slaughter. And so this perfect lamb is sacrificed for our sins. And we no longer have to make sacrifices for our sin because the perfect lamb has been sacrificed once for all sin, for past, for present, and for future. Hebrews 10, 11, and 12 says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for all sins, sat down at the right hand of God. And in verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. You remember that thought I wanted you to hold on to? The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So Jesus' death on the cross literally propitiated God's wrath against our sin. His death averted God's wrath to Jesus and therefore satisfied the demands of justice that God has. And his blood cleanses us from all sin. 
He is the propitiation for our sin, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. There's that religion again. It just keeps coming back. And you're thinking, can't we get away from this keeping commandments stuff? Well, we can't. Do you remember what Jesus said the two greatest commandments were, though? In Matthew 22, 37, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So when John is saying, keep the commandments of God, he's saying, love God and love your neighbor, because if you do these two things, you keep the whole law. So please hear me today. I'm not, we're not being called to a religion where we're just keeping commands. We're being called to love God with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So whether or not that's what you consider religion, that's what we're being called to. And that's the first way we know we are saved. We keep the commands of the Bible by loving God and loving our neighbor. The second way we know we are saved is we love our brothers and sisters. In 1 John 3, 9 through 10, he says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. The children of God, that is us who have been saved, we keep the commands of the Bible. And then he goes on to say that we who are saved love our brothers and sisters. So John's using this verse to transition from talking about keeping commands to loving our brothers and sisters. Picking up in verse 16, chapter, still chapter 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. We've already seen the love that God has for us in his sending Jesus to die in our place. And he sets the example of what love does by that. He didn't just say he loves us. He proved it on that cross. And then I love how John said this, if anyone has material possessions. Now, if you want to talk about a verse that transcends culture and time, this is it. Because he didn't just say, if anybody needs a goat or a lamb, he said, if you have material possessions. And he said, if you have those, you should love your brothers and sisters with them. But what do we mean by brothers and sisters? By brothers and sisters, we mean those who've also been saved, those who have been adopted into God's family. And so if you have been saved, you are my brother or sister in Christ, and I am your brother in Christ. So that might mean that we give our brother or sister something to eat, or we give them a place to stay, or maybe giving them a little bit of money to help them get through a rough patch. We see in Acts chapter 4, the congregation of believers, they were one in heart and soul. There was not a needy person among them because nobody claimed anything as their own, but they shared everything. And church, this is the way we are called to love our brothers and sisters. Let me be clear, I'm not telling you 
to go home today and put your house on the market and give all the money to the poor or to the church. I'm telling you, be attentive to the voice of God. Listen for him to tell you what to do. So maybe you know someone who needs their yard mowed, or they need a tire changed, or they need a room painted, and they just can't do that. They're physically unable to do that. But God has gifted you in one or all of those areas to meet their need. So meet it. Or maybe you know someone who needs an extra meal this week. And God has gifted you, has blessed you with the money to buy them that meal. Or the extra food to give them that meal. So feed them. Church, this is really so simple because it's not about some big project or some big financial giving It's about meeting the everyday needs of our brothers and sisters. And brothers and sisters, if you are the one in need, don't be afraid or ashamed to accept help when it comes. Because God often puts people in our lives in our times of need. So if you've seen the movie The Pursuit of Happiness, you've seen the part where the little boy is telling the story of a man who fell into the ocean and he had faith in God to save him. So a boat comes by, and they ask if they can help him. He says, no, God will save me. And then another boat comes by, and they ask if they can help him. And he says, no, God will save me. And then eventually he drowned. And as he stands before God, he asks God, God, why didn't you save me? And God said, I sent two boats to rescue you, and you refused their help. God sends us help in our times of need, if only we would accept it. We must love our brothers and sisters. Someone who is saved loves their brothers and sisters. And the final thing John writes to let us know we are saved is that we have the Holy Spirit. 1 John 4, 13 and 14. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. But how do we know we have the spirit? Let me start to tie this all together, because it's only by the spirit that we can keep the commands of the Bible, and it's only by the spirit that we are able to love our brothers and sisters. We as humans are totally depraved. We are unable to respond to God because of sin, and the sin separates us from God in every way. So it's only by the grace that he offers to all of us that we're able to accept him in his saving grace. And without the grace of God, we're completely unable to act morally. And by his saving grace, we're given the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit begins to change our lives and change the way we act. And so, When we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we begin to keep the commands of the Bible. And this isn't something we can do on our own because there are people who have read the Bible from cover to cover and have not been moved at all by it because the Spirit has not enabled them to be changed. In the same way, we are called to and enabled by the Spirit to love our brothers and sisters. We can be generally kind to people whether or not we're saved. That's just a part of how God has designed us that still allows us to be kind to others. But God's Holy Spirit enables us to truly love others. Like, do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? A Jewish man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho is beaten, robbed, and left for dead on the side of the road. Both a priest and a Levite pass by the man without pause. But a Samaritan 
an enemy to this man, stopped, had compassion on him, put him on his donkey, and took him to an inn to be tended to. And he paid the whole bill. So those who would have been considered a brother to this man left him for dead on the side of the road. Church, the Bible teaches us that we as a saved people are a royal priesthood. So if we're able to walk past our brother in need, do we have the Spirit? The answer is pretty clear. If the case in our lives is that we don't have the Holy Spirit, then we are not saved. So do you see where we've been going this morning? I want to kind of bring this into a fuller perspective. I've got these uh, three cups here. And we're going to use these cups to represent the believer because there are three aspects that the believer has that lets him know or her know they are saved. The first is obedience. The second is love. And the third is the Holy Spirit. And so a saved person is obedient. They hear the word of God or they read the word of God and they put it to practice in their lives. And the second, a saved person will love. They take the word of God and they love their brother and sister. They meet the needs of those around them as the Spirit has enabled them to do so. But we have to be careful with these first two because you can, do, you can have both of these present in you and not be saved. You can fake being good. You can do the right thing, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're saved. I can follow the speed limit, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm saved. I can choose not to kill somebody, but that doesn't mean that I'm saved. And the same with loving your brother and sister. Just because I meet the need of someone I call my brother or sister, it does not mean that I am saved. But this third, the Holy Spirit, this, this is the greatest assurance we have that we are saved. And you can fake obedience by doing the right thing, and you can fake loving others by meeting a need, but you can't fake the Holy Spirit the Spirit-filled person will have the fruits of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So the person who is saved keeps the commands of the Bible. The person who is saved loves their brother and sister. And the person who is saved has the Holy Spirit. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And who better a person for God to have write this letter to us than John? He literally walked with Jesus. He saw it all. So we're getting this message from God through John. Now, before we move to close, I want to point out one interesting thing. It's from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's so close to the wording that we see in 1 John 5.13. And it's because it's the same John writing these two letters. In the gospel he writes, so that you may believe on the name of, Son of, of the Son of God, and the latter so that you may know that you are saved by what you have believed. John has been writing these letters 
so that we would know Jesus and so that we would know, we would have assurance that Jesus has saved us. So believer, be encouraged by this word today. Know that he has rescued you from this world and that his Holy Spirit is your greatest assurance of salvation. If you're still struggling to grasp this today, we're going to be over here as we sing a song and we would love to pray with you. I checked, we are singing today, so didn't mess that one up today. (laughs) Or maybe you're here today and you've prayed the prayer, you've gone to church, but you've never let him save you. You've never let the Spirit come into your life and change you. We'll be over here and we'd love to pray with you also. Or maybe you've never accepted Jesus at all. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 6 that today is the day of salvation. We would be honored to talk with you and help you pray to accept him. So let me wrap up with the story and then we'll pray and we'll sing. There was an older man who went up to his pastor one day and he said, I will not go on unless I can know that I am saved or at least know that it's impossible to be sure of it. And the pastor said, Suppose you had a vision of an angel who told you your sins were forgiven. Would that be enough to rest on? And the man said, yeah, I think that would be, I mean, an angel should know. But then the pastor said, but suppose on your deathbed, Satan came and said, I was that angel transformed to deceive you. What would you say then? And the man was speechless. The pastor then told him, that God has given us something more dependable than the voice of an angel. He has given, his, given us his son who died for our sins and he has testified in his own word that if we trust him, all our sins are gone. The pastor read, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know you have eternal life and said, is that not enough to rest on? So whatever your situation is today, trust him. And if you would like it or if you need it, if you want it, we would love to pray with you. God, we come before you and we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the truth so that we can know that we are saved. Lord, we ask that as we go on through this week, we would be reminded that you have saved us and that you have given us assurance that we are saved. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.